Okay, well, we're continuing on our foundation of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Obviously, I wasn't here last week, so we'll do a break there. But hopefully you're retaining the things you learned the last two weeks we went through this foundation. And uh, today we're going to talk about, this is the first part of two, I'm going to finish this up next week, this doctrine of salvation. And this uh, first part today is on what is works salvation. What is works salvation? Now there's lots of things, I mean you might hear this word thrown around in uh, visible Christianity quite a bit. I know in my 16 and a half years now I've heard it a lot. Uh, what is works salvation, what isn't. And here's, here's some things people say works salvation is. And of course when we're, we're going studying the scriptures, one of the first things we need to do is define our terms, because if we don't define our terms properly, we'll never understand what God is trying to communicate to us through his word. Some people say work salvation is if you do anything to be saved. Um, these are commonly called Calvinists. So they believe, if you believe in free will, that you believe in work salvation. Because you did something to be saved. It wasn't all God's doing. It was partly your doing. Uh, so because you have free will, because you, because you chose to have faith, because you chose to repent, they say that's work salvation. That's not salvation by grace, according to them. You know, they would say that regeneration, becoming born again, comes first. And then after that comes the gift of faith from God, and the gift of repentance from God. So God changed your heart first, took out from you your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, and now you believe because God changed you. Now you repent because God changed you first. It's not a matter of, okay, I heard the gospel, the word of truth, I repent, believe, and now I become born again. They have it the other way around. They have it backwards. Okay, so Calvinists would say, work salvation is anyone who's not a Calvinist. So if they're consistent, they must say that everyone who's not a Calvinist is on the way to hell. Because they would start to quote from Galatians chapter 1. And you know, Paul said, if anyone preaches the gospel other than the one you heard from me, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Okay? Another thing people say work salvation is. This is typically the independent uh, Baptist who will say this. Only faith is required for salvation. Not repentance of sin. Repentance in their eyes is turning from unbelief to belief. Okay? Not turning from any sin. Of course, unbelief is a sin, so they have a problem right off the bat. Because you have to turn from at least one sin. So if you, if you turn from at least one sin, the unbelief, why shouldn't you turn from all sin? But it, you know, they, don't, they don't, usually don't catch on to that. So only faith is required. If you say repentance of sin is required at all, or holiness is required at all, then you you believe in work salvation. As many times, I'll have these guys comment on my refuting Calvinism videos. They love them, and then they'll see my video on holiness. And say, "You're just like the Calvinist. You're preaching lordship salvation." That's what they'll say, and I say, "Well, what other salvation is there besides lordship salvation? Besides having Jesus as my Lord? What kind of salvation do I have? Is Jesus isn't my Lord? But they're typically antinomians, which means anti means against. Nomia is the Greek word for law. They're against the law." And really, literally, you know in Matthew 7 where it says, Away from you, evildoers, I never knew you. 
The word evildoers there is, is antinomianism in the Greek. Away from me, you antinomians, for I never knew you. That's literally what it is in the Greek. They usually believe in one save, always save, of course, because listen, uh, you know, if repenting of sin is not required for justification, for initial salvation, then why is it required for final salvation? Nothing can make you lose your faith. These are even some like Charles Stanley who goes far to say that, you know, even if you become an atheist, you're still saved because you had one moment of faith in the past. Okay? So grace is a gift. You didn't earn it, you can't keep it. That's one of the sayings they'll have. Grace is a gift. You didn't earn it, you can't keep it. But let's think about that idea for a second. What If I give someone something as a gift, it means obviously they couldn't afford it or they didn't earn it. I gave it to them as a gift. It doesn't mean there's no conditions upon it. I remember, I mean, this, this so traumatized me when I was a sinner that I remember this when I was 15 years old. I coveted the stereo. I wanted the stereo in my bedroom. I wanted this new stereo. I loved to listen to my ungodly music. And uh, I knew my parents one year, and they bought it for me for Christmas. I knew it. I saw it up in the attic. I knew their hiding places. And I was rotten. I was a brat. And you know what? They took it back before I got it. Now, the fact that they took it back because I was a brat and I was rotten as a 15-year-old, does that mean that their, this stereo ceased to be a gift? Does it change the fact that they were going to give it to me as a gift? doesn't change that fact at all. When I was 16, I had a vehicle that I purchased from my parents for $750. Now, it was already paid off, and it was worth a lot more than that. I couldn't afford a lot more than that. I couldn't afford whatever three, dollars $4,000 it was worth, but I paid payments on it. But guess what? Eventually, because I was rotten again, I got in trouble with the law, they took it away from me. That car was a gift from them to me because I couldn't afford I couldn't afford what it was actually worth. But yet they made me pay $750. But it was still a gift. If there was anybody else and they made me pay what it was actually worth, I wouldn't have been able to get it. And eventually they took it away because I was rotten. Once again. Doesn't change the fact that it was a gift. I may say to one of my children, listen, if you are well behaved, by the time you're 16 or 17, I may split the cost of a car for you. I, if a car costs $1,000, I may pay 500 of it. Now that $500 that they don't have, is it not a gift? Yes. But I put conditions on it, didn't I? I sure did. So just because conditions are put upon something does not mean it's not a gift. I mean, even face these guys in the second group here, they put faith as a condition, don't they? So they have at least one condition on it. So what's the problem with having a second one? Oh, because they don't want to give up their sin. That's what it is. The third group of people who misdefine or under, they redefine work salvation is really the closest to the truth, too. They'll say faith and repentance of sin is required for initial salvation, but only the loss, complete loss of faith causes someone to lose his or her salvation. So sin doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. Only this one sin of loss of faith causes you to lose your salvation. If sin causes you to lose your salvation, then that's work salvation. These people are typically called Arminians. Okay? Now let me just help you understand. Arminian is not an Armenian from the country Armenia. Okay? The way to spell it is only with I's. There's no E's in Arminian. Okay? A-R-M-I 
N-I-A-N. Oftentimes I'll have someone accuse me of being an Armenian. I'm not from Armenia. <laughs> not only that, I'm not an Armenian either. Obviously we have some disagreements. But there's some who say only the loss of faith will cause you to lose your salvation. But wait a minute, that faith and repentance of sin was required for initial salvation. Why is it required for final salvation? Why the change of conditions all of a sudden? Okay? So these are, these are three things throughout my 16 and a half years that I've ascertained that people say, what is work salvation? Now, I disagree with every single one of these. <clears throat> and this uh, work salvation teaching, I've been working on this for probably years because I couldn't find sources, uh, whether commentaries or whatever, that I, teachings, videos, books, whatever, that I agreed with and their definition of work salvation. So it really was a bare-bones thing for me that I had to just really, just the same thing with original sin. I had to just go back to bare-bones, same thing with perfection. I had to go back to bare-bones, go to the Bible and just, let's just read it and see what it says. Because I really had no source just to kind of help me along the way in this situation. So today what we're going to do is I'm going to start with the framing of what Paul is saying when he calls something work salvation, Okay. Because when people are misdefining work salvation, usually they're getting it from Paul's letters. And remember what Peter said about Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3. That Paul's letters are sometimes hard to understand. It's unstable people twist to their own destruction. We don't want to be those people, friends. So oftentimes when you're reading Paul's letters especially, and I've told this many times, you want to read it all the way through. Or if it's something like Romans, maybe at least half of the way through, all the way through Romans 8. And then read the next eight, next time, in one sitting. So you can kind of just—I mean, I've been pounding this stuff into my head, you know, for the last probably couple months in preparation for this. I've been pounding Galatians into my head, Romans into my head, and pounding Colossians into my head. Ephesians—I've just been reading and reading and reading it to make sure I get this stuff right, because I don't want to bring the wrong things to you. So let's start with Acts chapter 15, and this is going to provide the framing, okay, the framing or the foundation for what Paul is saying. Because Acts 15, this council we see in Acts 15, chronologically is before the writing of Romans, before the writing of Galatians, before the writings of Ephesians and Colossians. In fact, uh, chronologically, there's probably one to two years before he wrote Galatians. Okay, this, this council in Acts 15. It's about eight years before he wrote Romans. Okay. It's probably about 15 to 20 years before he wrote Colossians or Ephesians. Okay, so this is the situation here we see in Acts 15. And we've gone through this many times in this fellowship, but I'm going to ask you some questions along the way as we read through Acts 15, all the way through verse 29. Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions along the way, so you can see what is being communicated here. This is... This chapter right here is very important to understanding what Paul is saying when he used the word works, salvation by works, and understanding this doctrine throughout his epistles. Okay, so Acts 15 and verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. 
And when they had come to Jerusalem, they received, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the first question, let's stop right there. What are the certain men, in verse 1, who were sent from the brethren in Judea, and the Pharisees, in verse 5, what were they contending for in regards to the Gentiles? What were, they, what were they contending for? Circumcision, that to be circumcised, and? Law of Moses. Keep the law of Moses. That's what they were contending for. Now, what was the big dissension and dispute about between Paul and Barnabas and these men? Was it over whether the Gentiles should obey God? Was it over whether repentance was necessary for salvation? Was it over whether, uh, you know, if they said they need to obey God, that was work salvation? It was over two things. Well, you can really combine them to one thing. One, they must be circumcised. Two, they must keep the law of Moses. Okay? When circumcision is part of the law of Moses. Really, it was, it was before Moses. It was in Abraham's time, but it was one of the laws found in Moses. Okay? So there's a difference here. So when it comes to law, that word law, and you're reading Paul's letters, you must determine by the context, and sometimes the context is very large. It may require you reading a couple of chapters of what Paul is saying before he says law or after he says law. When we see the word law in Paul's letters, we must ascertain, first of all, what law is he talking about? Okay? What, here's a question I have for you. Was there a law before Moses? Yes. Okay, and where, did that, where was that law found? Genesis. In Genesis, okay. Where in Genesis is it found? Okay, well we see one of the laws that God gave in the situation of Cain and Abel, right? Did, did, before that, did God ever say, don't kill people? Anywhere in the scriptures? But didn't they know that? Wasn't God assuming that Cain knew he shouldn't kill his brother Abel? What about uh, the time right before Noah's flood? What did God say about men's hearts then? Evil continually. The thoughts and attention of their heart were only evil continually. Now, wait a minute, God. There's nothing before that where God said, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. He didn't say any of those things before that. But yet he's calling people sinners. So there must be some kind of law God's referring to that's separate from the law of Moses, that's prior to the law of Moses, by which he's judging men by. Right, and we'll get to that in Romans 2 here in a minute. So when we're looking at Paul's letters, we must determine which one he's talking about. But in this situation, Acts 15, the whole problem they're dealing with here is whether the Gentiles who were getting converted in Paul and Barnabas' ministry, mostly in Antioch and other places as well, that um, whether they're supposed to, whether they're required to by God to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's the issue right here they're dealing with. That's what the big dispute and dissension was over. Okay, So they decided to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, 
know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we'll be saved in the same manner as they. Now in verse 7, I'm sorry, in verse 8, it says, uh, giving them the Holy Spirit, in verse 9, making no distinction between us and them. Who is the us and them in verse 9? John? Jews and Gentiles. So the issue being dealt with here is the Jews and Gentiles. What's the heck? Because in the Old Testament, if you want to be part of the covenant of God, the covenant was made through the law of Moses. And so you had to obey the law of Moses. And not only that, you had to be circumcised. And what were the Jews not able to bear in verse 10? What were they not able to bear? The law of Moses. They were not, it wasn't they weren't able to bear obeying God, the moral law of God, which was around long before the law of Moses. If that were true, then God wouldn't be just in judging them for it, sending these people to hell for those things. So they were not able to bear obeying the law of Moses. And um, what, what is Peter saying they're testing God with on verse, in verse 10? What are they doing that would be, a te- be testing God? That's right. Making the Gentiles obey the law of Moses and be circumcised. And by these certain men from verse 1, these uh, certain men from the sect of Pharisees from verse 5, they were testing God. Now this is not even Paul saying this, or Barnabas saying this. This is Peter saying this, who Paul says in Galatians, we'll see next week, is, is someone who was sent to who? The Jews. To the circumcised people. That was the main people he was going to minister to. He had the effective working of ministry from the Holy Spirit among the Jewish people. Not that he didn't ever minister to Gentiles. Not that Paul never ministered to the Jews. But he was effectively given the, the ministry for the Gentiles as an apostle. Okay, so they were, they were testing God by trying to cause the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses and to be circumcised. Uh, verse 11 says we are saved... Well, verse 11 says we're saved by grace. We have it through the Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What is saved by grace? We hear that terminology a lot when it comes to work salvation. What is saved by grace contrasted and contended with in this passage? Is it contrasted with keeping God's commandments? Living holy? That's right. Exactly. So we see salvation by grace, the thing that it's being contended with, contrasted with, set up against, is keeping the law of Moses and being circumcised. That's what it's being contrasted with. Let's read on, let's start in verse 11. Verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent, and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. 
And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, his words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which was fallen down, has fallen down. I will build his ruins and will set it up. But the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from things strangled, and from blood. Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What does James, who is the bishop, the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem, and the half-brother of Jesus... What does he want, uh, not want to trouble the Gentiles with? The law of Moses. The law of Moses. It's that simple. It's not a difficult question. It's not a trick question. It's just he doesn't want to trouble them. He's, look, he's saying, I don't want to trouble them. Peter says, you're testing. You're putting a yoke upon them that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. It's contrasted with salvation by grace. And we see he gives some things that he admonishes them to do, which is uh, to abstain from things polluted by idols. And you see in verse 29, he clarifies, in my opinion, what he means by that, that you abstain from things offered to idols, okay? Uh, from blood, from things strangled, and from sex and morality. If you keep yourself from these, you'll be do well. It's verse 29. Okay, so... He's, he's encouraging them to abstain from things that are offered to idols because when you eat things that are offered to idols, usually that means you're engaging in the feast of those who offered it to the idols. Okay? And we don't want to be in the world, or be of the world. We want to rebuke the world. We want to call, call the world to come out of their idolatry. Okay? And, and come to Christ. It'd be like me preaching out in front of uh, the Brimstone Arena to all the Justin Bieber fans, and then buying a ticket and going in and singing along with the songs. That's what it'd be like. Okay. Now Paul, if you want to read up to Romans 14 later on, he talks about if you're unaware of things offered to idols and this is placed before you, that your conscience must determine whether you're going to eat from it or not. He said all things are clean. So he's obviously not referring to this here, James. Uh, regarding things uh, strangled. Now, what happens if you, instead of shooting an animal, you strangle what remains in it? The blood. That's right. And uh, if you read through Leviticus and all throughout the Bible, you're going to find that uh, blood is pretty important to God. I mean, Leviticus 17.11 talks about this. How uh, the blood is given to you upon the altar to make atonement for sin, for it is the, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Okay? So... This is an admonition to us. We're all Gentiles here. Okay? That we're not to eat blood. I mean, I've watched before survival shows where a guy ate the blood of a yak up in Mongolia. I wouldn't eat blood to survive. God's against that. And when you strangle an animal, you don't want the blood to get out. 
I, I guess maybe back then from some commentaries I read, it was kind of like a delicacy. It was considered uh, more expensive meat, kind of like, you know, veal today. If you kill a, uh, a you know, animal as young as meat, might be more tender, so it's more expensive to buy veal than to buy a regular steak. So they were considered as a delicacy. And so both the strangling thing and the blood have to do with blood. Okay. And, of course, sex morality was just rampant. And that wouldn't just include fornication, but adultery, you know, homosexuality, bestiality, all kinds of wicked things that were being engaged in in the Roman Empire and seen as acceptable and okay. Uh, even at the, at the where you offered your idols in the, these idolatrous temples, there was prostitution going on. Okay, so it included everything. And I don't think James is being, uh, um, you know, exhaustive here in his list of what the Gentiles shouldn't do. I mean, Paul the Apostles is Gentiles. He, he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. To a, a Gentile city. To a church full of Gentiles. About other things they shouldn't be doing. And if they do these things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's obviously not giving an exhaustive list here, but he's giving things that he believes to be important. And obviously some of these things are from the Old Testament law. The blood issue and the abstaining from... Uh, things offered to idols. And then verse 21 says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So he's giving this command to the Gentiles in verse 21, uh, 19 and 20. But in verse 21, he's, I think he's basically saying here is this, but I don't need to give this command to Jews because Jews already know this. Because Moses is being preached throughout all the synagogues. They know to abstain from these things. Okay, let's, let's, let's see what he said in the letter here. In verse 23, they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some went out from us, troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom he gave no such commandment. What no such commandment did James give? To be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Okay, It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. That means they're all of one mind and one purpose. All the church there. Um, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. He sends Judas and Silas. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we therefore send Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And he talks about the things he doesn't want them to do again. So you see in this, uh, this uh, initial uh, conflict within the early church. This is probably around 48, 49 A.D. Okay? This initial conflict with Paul who sent to the Gentiles. Okay? And if you were to go back to when Peter had the situation with Cornelius, you would see they were, they were like, man, why did you go in the Gentiles' house and eat with them? But even a problem then. But even that didn't cause them to get over it. Because now, droves of Gentiles are getting saved. Whole churches are full of Gentiles getting saved. So that has to be addressed again. And so you see the issue here at the very beginning, early on in the church, that Paul's having to deal with, with these people who were coming from Judea, these people who were of the sect of the Pharisees, is that they were telling Gentiles they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. That's the main issue. Okay? So with that in mind, let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 1. That's the frame of what we're going to find in Paul's letters. Okay? 
And today we're just going to talk about Romans. I'm not going to get to Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians. We're going to talk about Romans. I'm going to give you an overview of the first chapter. Okay. In chapter 1, he, he gives an introduction. You see in verse 7 who he's writing to. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints. Not called to be saints, but actually called saints. Okay, they are saints. All right. And he says in uh, in verse uh, thirteen, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So he's writing mainly to a church of Gentiles. Okay, although I'm sure there's some Jews there. And then we see from verses 18 to verse 32, uh, many of you who preach in the open air, you've probably preached this scripture several times. It talks about homosexuality in there quite a bit. It talks about sin in general. It talks about in verse 32 that if you approve of people doing these things, not just homosexuality now, but of any of these sins, if you're approving of it, that you, you bear the same punishment they bear, okay? You, you deserve uh, death as well, and you deserve punishment from God, okay? And I'm going to assert to you that verses 18 through 32 is mainly talking about the Gentiles. Okay, and we'll get to that why that is here in a second. Okay? But I'm going to start in chapter 2 of verse 1. And in chapter 2 of verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 25, I am going to assert to you that he's mainly talking to Jewish believers or about Jewish believers. And this Jew-Gentile conflict, this work salvation being law of Moses, being circumcised, and the Jewish people. Okay? So let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Whatever you judge, another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. So we're going to have to figure out in the course of reading through chapter 2 who these people are who are judging. Because judging the people who are doing the things we see in verses 18 to verse 32 of chapter 1. And But they're doing some of the same things in, in the process. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So these are people who, who think, even though they're doing the same things, that they're still going to escape the judgment of God for some reason. And we're going to find out why they think they're going to escape the judgment of God, even though they're doing the same things these people in verses 18 32 are doing. Okay? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent, your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in a day of wrath, and the revelations of the righteous judgment of God, who render each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who, by patient continuance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Let's just stop right there for a second. You see, uh, in, in talking about what works salvation is, we can throw out the window of the antinomians now. Okay, the, the second people I talked about. Because it says right here, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And then in verse uh, 10 it says, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Greek's the Gentile. Or everyone else besides the Jew. 
Okay, we can throw that second definition, bye-bye, out the window. Let the wind blow it away. That's where it belongs. Verse, and, and verse 11, there is no partiality with God. So these people who are doing the same things that they're judging others for doing, they need to understand there is no partiality with God. For some reason, whoever this group is, we're going to determine in a second, they think there's some kind of partiality with God for some reason. They think that they're okay with God, but these other people over here who are doing the same thing, so I'm a certain to you in 1832 as the Gentiles, that they're going to be judged by God. But there is no partiality with God, and he will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 12, we're going to begin to start figuring out who this group is. For as many as have sinned without the law, who's that? Without the law? Gentiles. Will also perish without the law. So they'll still perish. They're still going to be judged by God. Now what law is he talking about there? It's got to be. Because like I said, there's Gentiles, and we're going to see here in a second, going to clarify, who have a law within them. There's, before the law most came along, there was a law which God judged people by. He destroyed the whole world because they were breaking this law. And he called everyone besides Noah his family sinners. For as many as have sinned without the law, Gentiles, will also perish without the law. As many as have sinned in the law. Who's that? Jews. Jews will be judged by the law. Now listen to verse 13. This will throw the second group out the window again. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. That's the Jewish people. But the doers of the law will be justified. That little part of that verse throws number two out the window again. Bye-bye. You've got to obey God. So, by hearing the law does not make you righteous in God's sight. That's what they were saying this whole time. He was, he was coming this whole time. The Jewish people, they think because they heard the law, because they had the law, because they're these special covenant people that God set apart through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they're just in God's sight. Is that true? No, because they're not doers of the law. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are in law to themselves. Now, there's certain things in the law of Moses that are moral commandments. And the Gentiles are doing these things, which are not the whole law now, because they don't know about sacrifice and all these things, but they're doing some of the things that are in the law because, by nature, what do they have? Conscience. A conscience. That's right. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Here's the verse right here, verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So there's a law, long before the law of Moses, that judged people, that condemned them within themselves, that accused them or excused them if they did what was right. Because that's part of their nature. It's part of their constitution. It's part of the way they were born. You were born with a conscience. You were born with God's law written upon your hearts. You know right from wrong. And if you never hear the Bible, you never hear law of Moses, you can still be judged without the law. That's what it says in verse 12. Verse 16. A day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Do you have any secrets, friends? God will judge them. You might be able to hide it from your spouse or from your children or from the brothers or sisters in Christ. You can't hide it from God. I hope you don't have any secrets. According to, according to Paul's gospel, 
God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Verse 17. He's going to hit it real hard now with the Jewish people. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. What are they resting in? The law of Moses. They're resting in it. They're thinking, oh, I'm okay. I got the law of Moses. I don't have to obey God. I make my boast in God. I'm a child of God. I was chosen by God. I'm elect of God. I'm a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And know his will. So they know about his will. There's lots of people who know about God's will, who don't obey God's will. Now it does not necessitate obedience. And approve the things that are excellent, being instructed at all. And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Who are those who are blind in darkness and are babes in these two verses? The Gentiles. And the Jews, because they have the truth, they could literally instruct them on how they should live. But does that justify them before God? Does that make them right with God? It sure doesn't. Having the form of knowledge and truth, so they have the form of it, form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should be not steal, do you steal? Who are you talking to this whole time? He's talking to Jewish people. That's what chapter 2, starting chapter 2, he's talking about. He's talking to them, because they think, I'm okay with God. They think, I have the law. I have, I have Moses. I have the truth. I teach these people who are in darkness. I'm in the light. But they're not walking in the light. You who say, do not commit adultery, verse 22, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And so we see in verses 21 through verse 24, it's a perfect corollary to verses 1 through 3. In fact, in my Bible, they're right across from each other. Right there. So you see in verses 1 through 3 and verses 20 and 24, perfect corollary. They go right together. It's exactly who he's talking about. These hypocrites, he will judge the Gentiles, and yet they're doing the same things the Gentiles are doing. Same things. Verse 25. Now we're going to see, we've seen the law come in. Uh, we've seen him talk about obedience, which obviously is being contrasted with the law, having the law, and knowing the law. And there's Gentiles who don't have this law, who are obeying the law. So there's different words, different ways of using the word law here, even in this little passage we see. Okay? Now circumcision is brought into the, the, the play here. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So, the circum, uh, circumcised are the Jews. Verse 26, for, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law. See, now he's, he's distinguishing there's some things in the law that are the righteous requirements, what I typically call in the open the moral law of God. We're not talking about ceremonial laws. We're not talking about putting sacrifices anymore. We're not talking about you know dietary laws. Paul talks about that in Galatians. We're not talking about clothing laws. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about the righteous requirements of the law. And if a Gentile keeps that part of the law, 
Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, the Gentile, if he fulfills the law, the righteous requirements of the law, judge you, who even with your written code, so they have the written code, they have the whole thing, they have it, but they don't keep it. With your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. They really thought that by cutting off a piece of flesh on the eighth day of a baby, that meant they were okay with God. What a bunch of nonsense. And we'll see next time in Galatians, Paul said, I wish you would have went the whole way. I wish you would went the whole way. If that, that little piece of flesh saves you, then maybe you should cut it all off. may sound kind of gruesome, but that's what he says. Verse 28, for he is a Jew, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter. Now, not in the letter. Now, is that talking about keeping God's commandments, obeying? We're talking about the law of Moses. Law of Moses. That's right. People use it all the time. Oh, it's all about the Spirit. And they think they can throw aside the Bible. The Bible doesn't matter. It's all about the Spirit. Not the letter. The letter kills. Is that what it's talking about? It's not what it's talking about. In the Spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, we see Paul here in his last verse. He does a little play on words. Okay? Maybe something you don't know. The word Jew literally means praise. It comes from Judah, the tribe of Judah, which means praise him. And so let me just read it for you again. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose Jew is not from men, but from God. Yes, the true Jew is from God. He keeps God's commandments, the righteous requirements of the law. And he's circumcised inwardly of the heart, not of the flesh. Now you can be circumcised of the flesh and still be a true Jew. Someone who truly brings praise to God. Okay? But that's not what makes you a true Jew. That's not what makes you a true Jew. Okay, chapter 3. And I'm only going to read the first couple of verses here, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 9. You can read the rest for yourself later. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm trying to communicate here. What if So people would think to themselves, well, if getting circumcised and obeying the law of Moses has, does nothing for me, then what good is it to be a Jew? That's probably the question the Jews would have asked themselves at this point. He says, well, what advantage then has the Jew? What profit is of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So they were given the scriptures. That's what oracles mean, or sayings of God. It was committed to them. And so by being a Jew, you got the truth way before anybody else did. That's a lot of benefit. It's like someone saying, well, just by being in a Christian household does not make you a Christian. Just by being raised in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Just by hearing the word of God taught by your parents doesn't make you a Christian. Just by praying before you go to bed or doesn't make you a Christian. And so what good is it to be raised in a Christian family? You've heard the word of God all your life. You can be saved earlier than everybody else. You don't have to go through all the nonsense I went through up until I was 19 years old. I have to deal with all that. That's like what he's saying here. Okay, verse 9 of chapter 3. What then? Are we better than they? Who's we there? Because Paul's a Jew. It's got to be Jews. Better than they. Who's they? Gentiles. Not at all. Are we better than they? Not at all. See, he's dealing with that because they think, up until this point, he's been dealing with this argument, they think they're better than the Gentiles. 
just because they're a Jew. And that's not true. See, that would have to require God being partial. That would have to require God saying, well, I like you better than them just because you're a Jew and you're a Gentile. Not the way God works. There's no partiality with God. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they're all under sin. And now he's going to try to prove to, the, to them again that they're all, not just Gentiles, but Jews as well, are all under sin. He's going to quote from Jewish scriptures. Now people are going to use chapter ten, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 through verse 18 to try to prove you can't seek God, you can't be righteous, you can't repent, you can't live holy. And I want you, when I read through, I want you to see if you see any of that. Or you see something else instead. Okay? There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Because people who fear God depart from iniquity. So in these verses, do you see anything that says you can't seek God? No. Or that someone can't be righteous? Only saying that they're not doing it. They're not doing it. And we can say that about all of ourselves. At some point in time in our life, we weren't seeking God. We were not living righteously. We were not doing good. We were turned aside. We were unprofitable. That the poison of ass were under our lips. I mean, how many here can admit that at one point in time in life, they were not controlling their tongue? They were not controlling their lips. They were using it for the destruction of someone, instead of the, benefic uh, uh, the bene uh, beneficial of somebody, They're benefiting them. So it doesn't say no one can be righteous, or no one can understand, or no one can seek after God. But no one can be good. In fact, if we were to take the whole counsel of Scripture, which is how you properly interpret the Bible, we see God calls people righteous. God calls people perfect and holy and good. So is God contradicting himself now? Or are the Calvinists and other people contradicting God? Yeah. Okay, verse 19. Now we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who are they? Jews. Let every mouth, not just Gentiles, let every mouth may be stopped. And the whole, all the world, not just Gentiles, all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, which law? The law of Moses. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the law came into this world to bring a deeper and more extended knowledge of sin. So the Jews actually got a worse predicament by getting the law than the Gentiles did by not having the law. In some cases, because if you weren't obeying the law, guess what? It has made you a worse sinner. It gave you more knowledge, which gives you what? More accountability and more responsibility before God. For the law is the knowledge of sin. Now verse 29. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Now people are going to take this verse and say, look, I don't have to obey God. My righteousness is apart from obeying God. Is that what it's saying? Apart from what law? law Moses. Apart from the law of Moses. The thing he's been talking about this whole time. People will take this one verse, strip it from this context, forget about everything Paul said before this, 
and say, oh, it's talking about obeying God. I don't have to obey God. My righteousness is apart from that. Not true. Not true. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. When you see the law and the prophets, simply just talking about the Old Testament. Okay? And the Old Testament talks about Christ coming. Many, 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 many times. All throughout it. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So he's saying, listen, to all and on all, Jew or Gentile, for there is no difference at all. They can all be saved. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now we see the word grace here again. And people will take this, verse 24, freely by his grace, justified freely by his grace, and they'll compare it to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. They said, look, they'll compare and say, look, I don't have to obey God. Grace is not obeying God. Grace is, you know, by faith only. By faith alone we're talking about here. But we know that what grace is being contrasted with here is not obeying God. It's being contrasted with keeping the law of Moses. Or thinking because you have the law of Moses that you're okay with God. Or somehow you get forgiveness through the law of Moses. Or because you're a Jew, you're special. But that's not true. That's not salvation by grace. That's not salvation by grace at all. It sounds more like a Calvinistic version of salvation. So we see in verse 24 once again, being justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a mercy seat, a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. It means he didn't hold it against them. He was passing over them, giving them time to, for Christ to come into the world so they can have faith in him. And so he can die on the cross so they can have true forgiveness of sins, which the uh, Old Testament sacrifices did not present. True forgiveness of sins. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, you also say his justice, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that means anyone who has faith in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. Verse 27. Where is the boasting then? Now let's go back to verse, I mean, chapter 2 and verse um, 17 and verse 23. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Verse 23. You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? Now he says in verse 27, where is boasting then? Is it in law? Is it in being chosen by God? No. It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. So now people are going to say here, look, works here is talking about keeping the law of God, obeying God. That's not what it's talking about. The law here we bring for Joel, once again, over and over again, is the law of Moses. That's what the law of faith is being contrasted with. Faith in the Bible is never contrasted with obedience or opposed to. If you have true faith, you will obey God. Faith is never contrasted with obedience. Faith is never contrasted with keeping the law, the righteous requirements of the law. But faith is continually contrasted with keeping the law of Moses and being circumcised, just as Peter did in Acts 15. He said they were testing God. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Which law? law of Moses. That's right. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes. 
of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God, not a God for the Jews and a God for the Gentiles, but there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Now, by saying these things by faith, is Paul excluding obedience to God? Is he excluding all the rest of the things he said throughout the rest of the scriptures he wrote? Of course not. Do we then make void the law? Which law? Law of Moses. But through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish. Now, how do you establish the law? By faith. Who completely fulfilled the law? Jesus. That's who it's talking about this whole time. By having faith in Christ, you become in Christ. You have the redemption, you have that grace, you be justified. Why? Because he completely fulfilled the law. He was under the law. And he completely obeyed it. He never broke it. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now, Abraham, a little history lesson. Was Abraham before Moses or after Moses? Before. He was before Moses, right? Way before the law of Moses came into picture. Way before. Okay? So, as you're, as you're thinking about it, I want you to remember that as we look through this. Okay? What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? So, it's, it's really Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, has found. Okay? Not saying he found something according to the flesh, like he was a fleshly thing he found. He is our father according to the flesh, and this is what he has found. So if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, is it possible for Abraham to be justified by works when the law came over 400 years later? Not possible. That's not what he found. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wage are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes or accounts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So we see the word impute, we've gone through this with impute thing, and how it's imputation of righteousness, the same as being considered as righteous, the same as having your losses forgiven, or having your sins covered, not being held against you any longer. We went through this many times, so you obviously know all these things. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then, with all that in mind, that what Abraham found, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. So he was righteous not only before the law of Moses, but before circumcision as well. Even before that, he was counted as righteous in God's sake because he believed God. Now, that Abraham, I'm not going to go back to this and read this through, but when Abraham believed God, God says, go over here to this land I'm going to show you that you do not own. Your fathers have never lived there. And I make your descendants to the sands of the sea. Did he say, okay, God, I believe that, and stay where he was? No. He actually obeyed, right? right? So we're talking about Abraham and faith here. We're not talking about him sitting back in a chair and saying, yeah, God, go ahead and do what you got to do, man. That's not what he did. He actually went forth. And obeyed God and did what God told him to do. 
So when we talk about faith, faith is never being opposed to righteousness and obedience to God. Never in the scriptures. Verse 11 again. He received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Why? That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may, might be imputed to them also. So Paul's dealing with the same thing we see here in Acts 15. That the Gentiles can be righteous in God's sight. They can be forgiven of their lawlessness. They can be considered as righteous by faith, even while being uncircumcised. And what did Peter say in Acts 15? He said, well, God approved of them. He acknowledged them by giving them what? The Spirit of God. He gave them the Spirit of God. Verse 12. And the Father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk, also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So he's saying to the Jews, listen, just because you're a Jew... Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are righteous in God's sight. does not mean that Abraham is really your father. Abraham is really only your father if you're a Jew and you walk in the same steps of faith he walked in. See the steps of faith? That's obedience there. They're aligned together. Steps of faith. He's telling you, you must be obedient to God. You can't be the hypocrite I'm talking about in Romans 2. Otherwise, you'll be judged because God is impartial. They're not going to treat you differently than he teaches the Gentiles. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, because the law wasn't around yet, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law, the Jews, are heirs, faith is made void. I mean, listen, if you just by being born to somebody that makes you a Christian and makes you an heir of God's kingdom, what else do you have to do? Do you even have to have faith in the God that your father believes in? Do you have to obey the law that that God gave you? Of course not. It's already taken care of, man. It's already predestined. It's already set in stone. Already elected. Nothing to do. For if those who are the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see that? So having the law of Moses brought about more wrath. It gave more things to obey, which gave more things to what? Disobey. Which brings what? Wrath. Gentiles didn't have that. They didn't have as much wrath as these guys did. They didn't have as much knowledge. Because the law brings about wrath. Verse 15. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, that a promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is a father of us all. So you see grace, once again, being mentioned in verse 16, and faith being aligned with grace, but it's not being contrasted, once again, with obedience to God's moral law. It's being contrasted, once again, with saying, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm okay with God. That I have the law of Moses. That I'm of the law. Because Abraham is the father of all those who are of the faith of Abraham and who walk in his steps of the faith. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Not just one nation, but many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which, did, which did, do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed, so he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. She's about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, we know that part of the promise to Abraham was that uh, he would have descendants through Sarah. Up to that point, he didn't have any. He was old. He was old. Now, did he sit around and wait for God to do, uh, you know, immaculate conception? No, he continued to be in it with his wife and practice the same thing he was doing, just trusting God to do it whenever he was going to do it. Verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore was accounted to him for righteousness. Fully convinced. Fully convinced. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, that righteousness was imputed to him. But also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And we're going to stop there. But you, I hope you can see. I mean, this, this is what it takes. This is why I've, I've tried to expl- express to you several times that when you're reading through the Scripture, you need to read it through in big chunks. Otherwise, it's going to be messed up. You're going to think that uh, uh, that faith and obedience are contrasted, that are against each other. That faith is the opposite of obedience. You're going to think that grace and repentance are opposite of each other. You're going to think that salvation and repentance do not come together. But as you read it through as a whole, friends, and see Paul's long argument here, and I think really at the end of chapter 4 is where he ends that part of the argument for now. He'll get back to it a little bit in Romans 9 and, and through 11. Uh, but um, I'll let you read that by yourself. I'm not going to talk about Aiden next time, Romans 9 through 11. Talk about that enough, I think, in this fellowship. But as you can see, the contrast with faith and grace and justification and imputed righteousness is with keeping the law of Moses and being circumcised, which is the very framework I gave you this, this morning with Acts 15. That's the framework. And so you deal with that chronologically, with Acts 15 starting out and going to Romans. Next week, we're going to go to Galatians. And we're going to do much of the same thing we did today, going through Romans. We'll go to Ephesians a little bit and go to Colossians a little bit. We'll even go to Revelation a little bit. And probably James. He talks about works and faith as well, and justification. But hopefully you can see, at the, at the outset here, that those three groups I gave at the beginning, that if you do anything to be saved, that uh, you know, if you believe in free will, that that's work salvation, that's out the window. You can see the second one, saw many times today, that no repentance of sin is required, out the window, and that um, we're probably not going to refute the third one, but obviously I think the next foundation I'm going to, I haven't completely decided this yet, is probably, you know, once they've always saved, losing your salvation, that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll see about in that, how someone loses their salvation. We talked about that a little bit last week uh, with the final salvation issue. But uh, there will be a foundation, I believe, talking about how someone loses their salvation, refuting once they've always saved and perseverance to the saints. Okay, so we see that Romans 1, 18-32 is mostly written to the Gentiles, I believe. While well, chapter 2, 1 through the end of chapter 4 was written to the Jews, or the, about the Jew-Gentile situation. Okay, questions, objections, thoughts? Um, I
No, no, Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote okay. Yeah. Okay. If I said it, it was definitely by accident. You define Constitution 1 Romans 2 properly. Yeah, Romans 2.14, you see the nature there is talking about their, their Constitution, the way they were born. But nature doesn't always mean that. We see that in Ephesians 2, and we also see that in, in Romans 1. 25, or 26, 27, which says that they leave the natural use to the woman, leaves the natural use of the woman, and does what's against nature. They become lesbians. So that, that's actually against their nature, not the way they were. They weren't meant to be that way. And so, yeah. yeah, I just want to point out for a little bit further clarity is that whenever the Jews... Whenever they're referring to the law of Moses, they're not just referring to the Ten Commandments. No. Actually, when the Jews, when they're referring to the law of Moses, they're referring to the Torah scrolls. And the Torah scrolls contains all 613 laws. So when they refer to the, the law of Moses, they're referring to the Torah. And that's all 613 laws. That's everything. Yeah. Usually the first five books of the Old Testament. Right. But that's also uh, referred to as the Pentateuch. Mm -hmm. Now, that there is differences between the Pentateuch and the Torah, uh, they consider the, the Torah as being completely in, innate of itself being holy. That the Torah scroll itself is holy. Uh, but they don't look at the Pentateuch as the same thing and it contains a lot of the same information. It contains all the same information as the first five books of the, the Bible, but it's actually even written in different ways. The ways that the characters are even written out are completely different written out. Uh, so it's, there's actually a marked difference between the Pentateuch and the, the Torah. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting. And then another thing I wanted to bring up, so I just want to amplify on verse 16 of chapter 4 of Romans. Uh, is it, let me see here, is it verse 16? Let me see here. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed not to only uh, which is of the law, which is talking about the, the Torah, but uh, to those to that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So now the faith of Abraham, will, like you pointed out, that's an act of faith. That's not just, let I me mean, just sit around, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe he did all these things. Well, if, all you do is believe in that way. You don't have the faith of Abraham. Right, because he did it. Because the faith of Abraham had action. He didn't just believe that he had a promise of a faraway land. He didn't just believe it and stay where he was and think that God was going to transport him there. You know, he actually got up. He got his family together and he left town. He went, he went where God told him to go. He walked in the steps of the faith. Right, walked in the steps. So, you know, we have to have that same type of faith, a working faith, a, a moving faith. Uh, not just a sit around and wait around faith, a, a passive faith. So that's the faith of Abraham we need to have. And a lot of the uh, uh, people that come against what we say and they, they, they accuse us of work salvation, uh, they don't want to do anything, so they don't have the faith of Abraham. So according to this, they have no grace. They have no grace. Without the faith of Abraham, action faith, you have no grace. 
So I just wanted to amplify that. Yeah, hypocrite Christians today are just like the Jews, right. especially the Calvinists, because the Jews were saying stuff about themselves because they were chosen and they were Jewish people and they had the law. You know, Calvinists also have you sometimes have the same boastful, prideful attitude about themselves. They think they're some kind of special because they've been elected. They're special, and so they think no matter what, they're they're good to go. You know, but obviously we see it's not true. God's not impartial. God will judge each one according to his deeds. And it's eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Yeah. Not the, the hearers of the law of justice of God, but the doers of the law of justice of God.